0: Uh, I have one other announcement, and that is on July 7th, uh, next Sunday, we're doing our next Connect party. And if you are new or newer to Element, we'd invite you to come to our Connect party. Uh, The cool thing about this one is that we're actually doing oven-baked pizzas. And I know you're probably thinking, man, why did I come to Element years ago? I could have come now and gone to get... Sorry. don't start over, though. Uh, so, so we're doing this uh, Connect Party 5 o'clock next week. If you are new newer, if you came to the last Connect Party, we, we've kind of revamped this a little bit based upon some of your guys' feedback that we got. And so if you went to the last one and want to come to this one and maybe uh, connect in hopefully a different way than you did in the last one, you feel free to come to this one again. Uh, go back to the Welcome Center, sign up. There's a little thing back there. We'll tell you how to get there and where it is. But again, next Sunday, 5 o'clock, Connect Party. That's what I got. So if you are new to Element, welcome. Uh, There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you've taken one before and you've lost it, take another one. We've got plenty. Uh, We'd love for you to have one. If you uh, want to follow along today with, and then after today, kind of go back and look through the things we've talked about. You grab some sermon notes. Uh, on one side, you get all the verses we're going through today. On the back side, you get a paragraph to kind of reflect on what we talk about today, as well as some questions to talk to one another about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. Uh, click on More, and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Mark chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And it says this. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief let's pray father this morning i ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in many times the ordinary places of our lives that we would trust you in the normalness that we walk through every day and that in so doing we would glorify you and that you would be honored as we live out in your joy in all of these normal places so teach us what that means and what that looks like amen Uh, have a seat So uh, we are doing this series for the summer called I Believe in Miracles where we are looking at miracles in the Bible and about what they mean and what God was doing in the times and places where he suspended the laws of nature for those moments. Now in the last 75 to 100 years, it's really become popular with almost everyone to try and find a way to explain all the miracles in the Bible. We're going to explain them all like, like Jonah and the big fish. Well, we have people today who've been swallowed by big fish and hours or days later they get puked up just like, Jonah, see, it's normal. It's not normal, right? But but it can happen. And I'm okay with stuff like that. I think a lot of instances looking for some type of explanation is okay for us to do. You know, a hundred years ago, uh, we were coming to the full understanding of like thermodynamics and chemistry and no one could figure out where the sun got all of its power from. Like, why did it always keep burning? Why did it never go out? Nothing they knew seemed to explain it. And some scientists said, well, it draws its power directly from God himself, which it's true in one instance that I believe everything holds together because of God's grace and God's goodness. But there is a scientific thing that we call nuclear fusion, and that is why the sun keeps burning. And I would say if we try to shove God into any, hole, into any miraculous hole we don't understand, that's really bad scientific technique. And sometimes that will prevent us from really discovering the things God wants us to know about the world. God made the world a certain way to run according to certain laws. And because those laws are there, it allows us to go and figure out why certain things function the way that they do. I think it's a miracle that God set things up this way and that we can discover the greatness and the majesty of who he is and how he set things up. Like think of a magician. If you want to learn how to do a magic trick, you have to take the idea that it's actually magic off the table so you can learn the magic trick. And so having said that, though, there are certain things in history that have been so extraordinary, so out of what we normally think should happen, that you have to conclude that they are divine, that they are miraculous. I would say the Israelites, when they're leaving Egypt, and they cross this Red Sea, and God parts the sea, and they walk across on dry land. I would say when you wake up every day as an Israelite, when you're in the middle of the desert, and every day God puts manna, bread on the ground for you to eat, and the bread only lasts one day, so you can't take extra, except on on the Sabbath, then it lasts two days, and that's pretty miraculous that God gives you food on the ground every morning. If I found food on the ground, I'd be like, I'm not touching that, you know, compared to the five-second rule didn't apply to them. But, you know, there, there are miracles that take place. You look at the life of Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, they are all miraculous things. And you might say, I'm an educated person, I don't want to believe in miracles. But if you have any inkling in your heart or mind that there could actually be a God, then you have to acknowledge the possibility of miracles. Uh, Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If there was nothing there, and then there was something there, that's miraculous. Even if that came about through natural processes, like even a big bang. Well, what made the bang? There has to be something. Something doesn't come from nothing, so it is miraculous. And a God who created the laws of the universe could certainly suspend them when he wants to to do certain things. And I'd say if you're anything but a you know committed atheist, you have to allow in some instances for the possibility of miracles now again that doesn't mean that's how the universe normally works Uh, there's a reason we call them natural laws and we call it supernatural when something happens or extraordinary when god does a miracle which brings me to kind of what we're going to talk about today in the life of jesus because we're going to talk about what's not a miracle i'm going to talk about the lack of a miracle and a few years ago we did this series called what in the world where you got to ask all your bible questions and we went through and we answered those this is one of the questions i got but i didn't answer so if this is your question and you're still here great i just wonder if that person who wrote this question is gone and be like never answer my question i'm out of here only takes me three years to get to it all right so open your bibles to matthew chapter 13 And then also put a place in Mark chapter 6. We're going to read two different accounts of the same thing, and then we're going to talk about it and walk through it so you get the perspective from two different people. I want to show you both in this. They're very, very similar, but there's just this slight difference, which is kind of big. Uh, Matthew 13, starting in verse 53, going through verse 58. Matthew says this. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, "Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things?" And they took offense at him, because Jesus but Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, here's Mark's version, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, which is another rendition of Joseph, by the way, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief now they're pretty similar except in mark it has this line and he could do no mighty work it seems almost like jesus is beholden to faith and if we don't have enough faith jesus can't do anything and i want to talk about this because sometimes people wrongly get bad theology out of these verses because they don't understand what's actually taking place uh, some say god needs our faith to perform his miracles which is in the end wholly untrue we do not limit god in any way god does not want to be limited today there are modern faith healers and they appeal to this text sometimes in explaining their own inability to affect genuine miracles and they will say you don't have enough faith to be healed it's your fault which if you're in a marriage that's a terrible argument technique it's not my fault it's yours You're not going to get very far. Okay, I'm just throwing it out there. The Bible unequivocally teaches that Jesus possessed the power to perform miracles. They're prophesied in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. His miracles will astound his own disciples in Matthew 14. They will confound his enemies in John 11. In John 9, he exercised divine power over disease and infirmity. Uh, In John 6, he has power over the laws of nature. In John 2, he has power over material objects. In Matthew 12, he has power over the demonic world. And in John 11, he has power over death itself. And there are all these clear examples throughout the scriptures of where Jesus performed miracles on behalf of people who evidence no faith in him at all. Like in the book of Luke, Jesus will raise someone from the grave. How much faith does a dead person have? Zero, right? Zero. So with this wide range of power, it's not you know hardly conceivable that Jesus failed in his power on this occasion. Again, we know God can do anything God wants to do, regardless of someone has faith or not. And as you look in these sections, there's something that's very clear that takes place. There is this connection between faith and the rejection of Jesus. And where they are going with this is the rejection of who Jesus is. Now, in past messages, I've talked with you through the book of Matthew, and I showed that Matthew is pretty specific on the. Things that he does and that he covers, like Matthew chapter five through seven, is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the most beloved sermons Jesus ever gave. Right, and at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, these people look at Jesus, they're astounded at his teaching, and they say, "Wow, where did he get this authority from?" And so, what Matthew will then do is in Matthew eight and nine, which I took you through over fourteen weeks, is that Jesus goes and then he shows his authority by what he does. And where does he get his authority? Well, let me show you. And he does that when you get to Matthew thirteen and fourteen. Matthew walks through these ideas of the reception and the rejection of who Jesus was in five different ways. In Matthew 13, 53 to 58, which we're looking at today, it's at his hometown. There's rejection and this lack of faith in who Jesus is because really of how ordinary they saw Jesus to be. Then you go to Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. You see this guy named Herod, who is the ruler in the area. And he has this moral rejection of the message that John the Baptizer is giving to return to who God was calling Herod to be, and Herod has him beheaded. In Matthew 14 verses 13 to 22, you have these his Jesus' disciples. They got this lack of faith, and what does Jesus do? He goes and he feeds 5,000 people with some fishes and some loaves, even though they had a complete lack of faith. In Matthew 14, 22 to 33, you have this scene that comes right after Jesus feeds 5,000. His disciples get in a boat, they head out into the lake, and Jesus goes walking to them on the lake in the middle of the night when it's all windy and blustery, and the disciples are like, ah, going on the waves are going to kill us and here comes Jesus and they think he's a ghost ah he's a ghost the insiders Jesus disciples fail to recognize who Jesus is and then when they finally do then Peter says oh tell me to come walking to you on the water and Jesus is like, let's go buddy. So he gets out of the boat, takes a couple steps and then he gets his eyes off of Jesus, onto the wind of the waves and then he sinks. So you have the insiders who fail to recognize him until Jesus then shows himself. Then you have this faith and lack of faith. Then Matthew 14, to 36, Jesus goes to people who are outsiders at a place called the Gennesaret. And when he shows up there, they embrace him. They don't reject him. It's almost showing you the difference between what happened with the insiders and the disciples and the outsiders that didn't really follow and know who he was and they recognize gnize him when he showed up. Matthew 14 verses 35 and 36 says, "And when the men in that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and that is the way of believing in the Messiah. "I want to touch the fringe of your prayer shawl." And as many as touched it were made well. And so you have these things and where Matthew is doing something very specifically, and Mark is as well. In Matthew and Mark, in the verses we're looking at, Jesus shows up to his hometown. They're all like, yay, Jesus back. This is amazing. It's so great. They're astounded at his teaching. But then things start to set in. And they start going, but isn't that Mary's son? We know him. what?" I'm going to be offended because he shouldn't be telling me what to do. I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago uh, and I, and I talked to the message with this couple and this lady approached me afterwards and she said, I didn't like how you were judging me. And I'm like, what? Like, I, <laughs> I don't even know who you are. Jesus, like, you said these things. I go, I'm talking to the couple, and there are words of grace. And I said, I'm really, I didn't mean to. But sometimes people take things like that, right? So they do this with Jesus. They get offended. This knowing of his family made Jesus too ordinary. We use the word mundane. It made him too mundane for them. And it says they took offense at him. The wording in this literally means they refused to believe because of how they saw him. Uh, William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, writes this. In spite of what they heard and saw, they, the the people of his hometown, failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in the village. It's, he's too mundane, he's too commonplace, he's too like me, isn't that the carpenter? He's nobody special. This is kind of like us. We live in an area where every once in a while, movie stars and stuff will buy houses in some place, and you might be out somewhere, and you might see them. Like, you're in Los Alamos, and they go to flatbread, and you're like, oh, juicy, so-and-so was at flatbread. I didn't know they ate flatbread. Whoo, and you get really excited. It's like, people got to eat, right? And you are really weird about this stuff. But all of a sudden, we think that these movie stars are so beyond us. Oh, they're so amazing. I'm going to tell you something. Movie stars poop just like you, Okay movie stars they'll work out and they stink and they got to take showers just like you they got to sleep like you they've got to clean their house or pay somebody to clean it they got to mow their lawn or pay somebody to mow it but they're just like you and many times people have this huge ideal and you get to know somebody for a bit and you're like oh my goodness you're just like me and this is what is kind of happening to jesus they grew up in this town with him look he's ordinary that's just who he is. Isn't that Mary's son? I know who that guy is. Now in a patriarchal society you would never use the mom's name first like that. Mary's son you always called by your father's name, not your mom. And most commentators say this is most certainly a reference to them trying to pull Jesus down and then talk about how he is born out of wedlock. Like our miracle of the virgin birth that's a stigma, a negativity that followed Jesus around his entire life. And what they're saying in the rejection is he's it's too ordinary he's just a carpenter we know his brothers he must not come from very bright stock right we remember you some people probably said i remember uh watching him for mary when joseph and mary wanted to go out on a date i remember changing his diaper or whatever they have for diapers back then all that you know i wiped his nose i know this guy that can't be the savior of the world that's what they say and this is still our problem today People today get very offended by the ordinariness of the gospel message, which is extraordinary, but it's, it's the, the message of the gospel is we are not saved or related to God on the basis of our moral performance or the basis of our past or our record. We are related to the Father on the basis of Jesus' righteousness for us, his performance in the ordinary for us. Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived, so what is that then going to look like? It's going to look like a life who trusted in God's power and God's spirit, but he walks through ordinary life living in God's spirit and his power. Jesus dies the death we should have died in our place. And if we are willing to trust and transfer our faith from our own performance and our own past and our own record to him, we get relationship with God and a perfect uh, relationship with him forever because of what Jesus did. There is no parallel to this in any religion in the world. Every other religion sees salvation as an arduous process of seeking enlightenment, climbing the mountain, you know, smoking the dope and having a spirit Quest. I've got to find who God is. At no other religion talks about a single moment of faith that even a six-year-old child can do. Everybody has these paths of enlightenment or rituals of purity. And you may doubt me on this, but my dad is, is not a Christian, and we have had this conversation before. And one of the things he has said to me is that Christianity is kind of dumb because somebody on their deathbed could live the worst life ever, and on their deathbed repent and have faith in Jesus, and then they get to be with Jesus forever. He says that's too easy. It's too easy. Easy. He's like, give me an eightfold path or uh, five pillars. Give me something I can stick my teeth into, so I can work it off myself. Like in the Old Testament, there is this guy. His name is Naaman. Naaman is a general in Syria, and he contracts leprosy. And he's, he's like, what do I do with this? He has a servant that says, there is a prophet in Israel that if you go to him, he might actually heal you. And so what Naaman does is he gets his money, gets his soldiers, gets everything he's got, and he takes his whole retinue down into Israel to find this prophet. Uh, he is probably the richest guy in the world, second to the king of Syria. And he shows up to Elisha's door. Well, it's probably woods, and it sounds like that. You know what I mean, right? Knock, knock, knock. Knocks on this door, and the person that opens it is not Elisha. It's his intern. He's like, hello. This is what I want you to do. Uh, go and wash yourself in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a muddy, nasty mess in most places. But I want you to go wash in that. Shuts the door. Can you name and like, what just happened? Right. Just what, what in the world? And he storms off and he's angry. He's like, how dare this happen? He is so mad about it. Like he expects the prophet to come out and be like look, 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 be healed, you know, do some song and dance, do something crazy. So he would be healed and everything would be great. But that's not what he's required to do. What's he's required to do? Something that's ordinary. That's what he's called to do. And he goes storming away. And So a servant comes up to him and says, you know what? If he asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it, right? You know, you would have have slayed the monster or rescued the captives or destroyed all the boy bands or something. You would have done something, right? He's offended because it's too easy. Any idiot can wash in the Jordan River. You know, any idiot can be a follower of Jesus. And most of us say, thank God for that, right? Right? We don't have to be good or bad, strong or weak. Anybody can do it. It's so easy ordinary, but it is extraordinary. See, he's looking for all these extraordinary things, but it's in the ordinary. He's offended because of the ordinary. Think of the ordinariness of Jesus' life, right? Born in a stable, uh, shepherds come to his birth. Shepherds are not the highest in society, they're the lowest of society. He's a carpenter's son, becomes a carpenter himself. The majority of his life, he's a blue-collar laborer, just so ordinary. And this is why the townspeople reject him, just like some people still reject Jesus today because of the ordinariness of Christians. I mean, think about the complaints about Christianity, right? Uh, today, it's, it's always related to Christians because the nature of the gospel, who are Christians? Are Christians the most morally disciplined people in the world? no and that's a problem right because everyone's like looking at christians going, those are knuckleheads christians are knuckleheads that that's the deal are christians the smartest people you ever met (laughs) no i'll introduce you to some okay you know you got to get it we got to understand this are christians always living the best lives no no who is a christian Christians are people in general who have come to see that they are moral failures in their lives. One writer says this The gospel is not for people who say, I can do it. The gospel is for people who understand they can't do it. Because Christians are people who have made bad decisions, who have lived rough lives, who maybe come from bad or good families, whatever, but we become believers because we trust Jesus for who he said he was, for what he did on our behalf as he lived the life that we should have lived. The glory of the gospel is that we are accepted and loved even though we are still deeply flawed. Have you ever talked to somebody who's a Christian and as you're talking to them, you're like, my goodness, you are jacked up, right? You're like, yeah, that was me. All right, we got it, right? We're just an ordinary person. But just because someone is filled with flaws does not mean the message of the gospel is untrue. Other religions will say things like the good are in and the bad are out. The disciplined are in and the undisciplined are out. The glory of the gospel is that because of the grace of Jesus, the humbled are in. And the proud are out, but the proud are still being called in. That's the beauty to a life of humbleness and grace, which is another problem when you talk about ordinariness is that the life that so many Christians now live. Like when a lot of people first come to follow Jesus, all this joy and hope and excitement, but then after a while you start to realize that there's not going to be a lot of quick fixes in our life, right? It's going to slowly go forward. And God, unfortunately, according to us, is going to work through ordinary life. Like if you decide at some point, I am going to serve other people around me, God will most likely put someone in your life where serving them isn't easy. Serving them actually becomes hard because God wants to grow you. You will run into hard people who seem unlovable because God wants to grow as an understanding His grace towards us as we extend grace to other people around us. This growth in grace comes from interruption and irritation and irritating people in ordinary life. God develops Christ-likeness in our lives through ordinary life as he moves and walks with us through life. Uh, in Christianity, we have this really large word called sanctification, and it essentially means salvation in present time, that through our ordinary life, God is working and growing us to be more and more like him and his son through his own grace and his own goodness. Everybody wants quick fixes. Everybody wants enlightenment or something dramatic. Give me the miraculous. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I broke my, my, we were on the lake this week and, and our boat got broken my fault. Um, and it's, it's in the shop. And I, I, this morning, I, I tell people, I'm not going to pray for your animals because that's done. This morning, I actually prayed for my boat. <laughs> and my wife goes, you know what? You want a miracle. It's going to take the long, ordinary route. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I love you. Ah, <laughs> right? It's, it's so funny because God does. He walks us through ordinary life. And some people are so offended by that. I think that's the miracle that God takes the time to grow us in the way that He does. Edward Shalito has this passage in which he says about Jesus, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to His throne. Born as a baby, manger, crucifixion, rejected by the elite, rejected by His family, rejected by His hometown, in the end, forsaken by His disciples, He stumbled to the throne, and so will we. I mean, it's beautiful it really is because of how ordinary they saw jesus the text says they took offense at him and again they refuse to believe they start to reject him and i think this refers back to isaiah 53 5 and this prophecy about what the messiah would do when he would come he'd be despised and rejected and even in the places where you see jesus being rejected he's still true to the call of god Matthew says, he did not do many mighty works there. Mark says, and he could do no mighty work. Matthew is not trying to downplay Jesus' lack of power or anything like that. The context is important for what Matthew is trying to say and what Mark is trying to say. And I, and I hope I don't lose you here, but in Mark, when he starts using these words, he could do no, there's a Greek phraseology in here. So in Matthew, it's these words called... Uh, and and that means he didn't do any and then you get to mark and it's and it has this idea in this that he chose not to do something it's an idiomatic saying an idiomatic all that means is that it made sense to the original audience like if i said to you i am so hungry i could eat a horse you would know that i'm not really going to eat a horse i'm just really hungry although i wouldn't be opposed to trying horse somebody in first service goes yeah it tastes great and i'm like Good fact to know about you. I, I, I got it now. Uh, or if I said, if I said hey, I, I'm starving, you would know that I'm not really, I might look like it sometimes, but you know I'm not really starving, right? Or if you go to an amusement park and you get on a ride and you say, oh, that ride's insane, right? It's... You, you know, you know, the ride's not insane. It's like, oh, I'm kind of insane for wanting to ride the ride. It's that kind of thing. And so, Udunomai is this idiomatic way of saying that someone chose not to do something, though technically they have the ability to do it. Uh, Luke 14, Jesus tells about this great banquet that people were invited to. It's representative of his ultimate banquet one day. And there's a guy who says, oh, I, I don't want to come. And he makes this excuse. Uh, Luke 14, 20, he says, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot, Udunomai, that's the words, I cannot come. Now having a spouse, you know, is, is scarcely creates an impossibility though, except unless it means being on time. I get that, right? You know, but but not showing up at all. No, no, you're making a choice. Uh, John writes, First John 3, 9, Whoever is begotten of God does not sin because his, that's God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot, Udunomai, sin because he is begotten of God. Now, John is not suggesting that it is impossible for the child of God to sin. He's stating that when God's divine truth takes up residence in our heart and our lives, we choose not to yield ourselves to this habitual life of sin. And so the word cannot is used to making like this decision. It's not in these instances Jesus couldn't do anything. He chose to limit his power because of their unbelief. The text clearly says he did heal some people, so he did do some miraculous things. So his power is not the problem. Matthew and Mark have the strong emphasis on this stubborn, purposeful disbelief of the people in his hometown. It's why it says Jesus was astonished at their lack of belief. Astonished doesn't mean surprised there. It means he's marveling at the depth of this unbelief. And this unbelief in the Greek text actually has what's called a definite article in it, and it actually says the unbelief, the unbelief of trusting in who Jesus is. Now, throughout the miracle series, you will see sometimes that God will do certain things in order to take people from a place of disbelief to belief. And when he does that, it's this whole idea of moving heaven and earth to do something miraculous in these things. You say, well, why couldn't Jesus just do that here now? Take these people from a place of unbelief into the place of belief. I think the depth of where they were and, where, and seeing the ordinariness of Jesus in their hometown, Jesus decides to use this instead as an opportunity to raise his, and grow his disciples in ways that they would never have before. So he uses it as a teaching moment for them. Because no matter what happened, the townspeople probably still wouldn't have believed. Jesus says, even if someone rose from the grave, they wouldn't believe. In Luke sixteen thirty one, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Is that not the truth? I mean, guys, there is historical evidence for the miraculous resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And people still find excuses not to believe and live in a lack of faith. Because when we want to live with hard hearts, we're going to live with hard hearts. Essentially, people in his hometown say, who does this guy think he is, right? He's merely the carpenter's son. He's a carpenter himself. We know his mothers, his brothers, and sisters. Then discerning the disposition, Jesus limits his activity among them. I think one of the miracles is Jesus doesn't cram himself down their throats at this point, so to speak. I mean, there's no real problem with biblical narrative. The problem is always going to lie in the hearts of people who are looking for a flaw in who Jesus is so we don't have, so we have an excuse not to believe in who he is. And I'm trying to think of a way to wrap this up for you. So I stole this thing from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this book called The Screwtape Letters. In The Screwtape Letters, there is a, a senior demon, and his name is Screwtape. And he's giving instructions to his younger his nephew, whose name is Wormwood. Uh, Wormwood translates as Chernobyl. right. So anyway, so you got Wormwood and Chernobyl. (laughs) Anyway, uh, and so Screwtape is talking to his nephew about different ways to try and pull people away from following Jesus. It's not your average book. It's written like in a different old English a little bit, but it's very interesting. So Screwtape says this to his nephew, Wormwood. He says, work hard then on the disappointment. Which is certainly coming to the new believer during his first few weeks as a churchman, like as a Christian. When he gets to his pew and looks around him and sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that the religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Why? Because everybody around him is so normal. The enemy, that's Jesus, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learn Greek. I mean, you know how that is. Your kids are all learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. The enemy takes this risk of letting people live in the ordinary because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his sons and daughters, his free lovers. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. Now, C.S. Lewis actually puts in quotes, do it on their own, because he doesn't believe that God leaves us to do it on our own that we live and walk through god's strength but it's this demon's misunderstanding of how and why jesus is doing what he does c.s lewis told you that we live our lives in god's strength but we live that in the ordinary the miracle of how god grows us day by day as i will tell you don't be overthrown by the ordinariness of the christian experience or the ordinariness of other christians or the ordinariness of the gospel message which is really extraordinary god's good news And the miracle that he does is he takes us many times through the slow road so we would understand the gospel better. And I know there are times and places in everybody's lives where we pray, God, just take this thing away. God, do this. The Apostle Paul prayed that. And God said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you because I want to grow you through these places in your life. And I think that God does that because he wants to use us in other people's lives as well i think that we become god's ambassadors to the world we become his hands and feet and so as we struggle and work through things we can then help other people in the same places god uses us and grows us and does this miracle of not just plucking us out of the world anytime somebody believes but leaves us there to grow with him in grace every single day of our life when we talk about communion element every week We invite you here. You break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dim it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. We don't pass it around the room. It's a response to what God has done. And what we have to understand is this promise of Jesus coming to rescue us, this was made thousands of years before Jesus ever came. When our first parents fell in this garden, that's where God says, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to redeem. And it is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years before Jesus ever shows up. But God is good for his promises. God is doing a mighty work. God is doing what he plans to do to grow his people how he knows they need to be grown. And it is day by day trusting him. Because he is good. So the band's going to come up. And I want to invite you guys to take communion. And in communion today, I want to invite you to remember how God grows us to be the people that he calls us to be. If you are in a place today and you would like prayer, maybe you're in a spot where you are just struggling through the ordinary of your own life. And you're like, "I I just feel like it's so mundane. I feel like it should be so different. And you want someone to pray with you, they would love to pray with you. They would love to kind of talk through some of these ordinary places in our lives, which in the end, I think become extraordinary because we are a people who God calls to live out in this world in a way that puts all of our hope and faith in who he is as he restores us and leads us and guides us to live life in the natural world, in the laws that he has made to govern the entire universe. We live in the midst of that. And we get to walk day by day with Him into all of these things because of His grace and restoration in relationship with Him. And that is how other people will see how good He is as we live out our lives in the midst of the ordinary. The ordinary is is nothing to run away from or be ashamed of. The ordinary is the beauty of God's grace saving us exactly where we are and using us in people's lives to make that call to other people as well. We get the great beauty to be God's ambassadors to this world as we live out in these ordinary ways. And if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Um, There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God has given so much to us. So giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. I invite you to grab some sermon notes, grab some snacks, meet somebody, maybe talk through some things this week about, you know, what are the places in your life you feel are too ordinary? Where would you want God to do something extraordinary in your life right now? And maybe just stand back and marvel at the goodness of who he is as he walks us through all of these different places in our lives. Because I think one of the greatest gifts of grace that God has given us is one another. And this is why Element pushes gospel community so strongly, is that we believe that we are called to do life with one another. God saves us individually, but he places in the community with each other. That we as a people are the church. It's not a building. It's not something you attend. It's who we are now. And we get to be in a relationship with one another. The extraordinariness of walking through daily life with each other as we worship God together and call one another back to who he is. Guys, let's be a people who begin to worship God in that ordinary, everyday of our lives because that is where worship is truly seen. Not just singing songs on a Sunday, not listening to this guy yak at you for half an hour. It's how we live out our lives in everything that we do. That's the astounding beauty and mystery that is the good news of the gospel, that we get to live out the great good news of God's rescue of us in the normalness of our lives. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us daily that everything we do can ultimately be worship of who you are. God, so often I think we get sidetracked by our lives and how we see them so often just being ordinary And I ask that you would teach us to see the extraordinary of that ordinary. That you created us to live in your world in a way that brings you great glory as we live in joy that you provide. And that comes from living out normal lives. Going to work. Raising families. Having friends. God, your goodness is astounding in its rescue of us in our normal everyday. Thank you for saving us the way that you do it individually, but thank you even more for placing us not just in relationship with you again, but with other people. And I ask that we would be those who begin to live out our relationship with you with others and in front of others and to embrace many times the ordinariness and what should just become natural and how we love you and all that we do. And that would then begin to speak volumes to the world around us as you start and continue to bring your restoration and your redemption, that you would truly use us to see the world as you do, to speak the words you would have us speak into the world around us and to always be those who are astounded by your great love for us in ways that it causes us to live out lives of worship of you in all that we do. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.